There was a certain man of Ramathaim, Zophim, of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, son of Joram, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Duh, in a Paphrite. That's the same uh, area around Bethlehem. We've been studying Ruth. He had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah. The name of the other was Peninnah. Or Peninnah. Peninnah had children, but Hannah had no children. Now this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship at a sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Peninnah, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. They, they, the tradition says she had ten. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not sure if that's if we know that for sure. But to Hannah he gave a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed the womb. And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore Hannah wept and could not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? And why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli, the priest, was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, I will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head. In other words, he would uh, be a Nazarite. As she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth, and Hannah was speaking in her, own, her heart, only her lips moved and her voice was not heard. Therefore Eli took her to be a drunken woman. And Eli said to her, How long you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. But Hannah answered, No, my lord, I am a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman, for all along I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. Then Eli answered, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant you your petition that you have made to him. And she said, Let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went, woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. They rose up early in the morning to worship before the Lord. Then they went back to their house at Ramah. And Elkanah knew Hannah his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And in due time Hannah conceived and bore a son. She called his name Samuel, for she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. Alright, so. Again, a new book, and uh, just uh, again, it starts right off with this very interesting account of what's going on here. And of course, as we've seen, there's reason for all this. this there's their purpose, and why this was recorded in God's Word. The theme of this book uh, is the transition from judges to the monarchy system or rule, but maybe better we could say from a self-rule to the, a mon- monarchy. So uh, it'll begin then with the account of the last judge, who is Samuel, and then will relate to us the first king, which will be Saul, and then uh, it'll end with Saul's death, and then in chapter 2 Samuel, we'll begin to look at David's reign, although David will obviously be introduced to us in 1 Samuel as well. So 
this book continues the Old Testament way of pointing to the greater Son, that is Jesus, who will be given by God to deliver Israel. Uh, and we've seen this several times, and we see it here, that there is a son born to a woman who had been barren for some time. And God, at some point, opens the womb and she bears a son. Uh, it's worthy to note here that, uh, we'll see here in a moment, that she has been asking specifically for a son. Not just, Lord, I want to have a, a kid, I want to have a son. And of course, we know there's a reason for that. But all, the reason we see this scenario, we saw it with Rebecca, and uh, with her son Esau and Jacob, with uh, Sarah, uh, being barren for a while, and the Lord given a kind of a miraculous uh, child in that sense, is because it's pointing to the fact one day when the Lord will be born of a virgin. So we're seeing this reoccurring theme. Um, she, she, Jewish women specifically wanted to have at least one son because they knew that the Messiah was going to be born of the seed of a woman and that had been promised to Abraham. Um, and then along with this account, if we want to see something of Jesus here too, once again, it's something we've seen as well. We thought, you know, very well with Jacob and his uh, four wives, you might say, two wives. We get to see how pleasant family life is under polygamy. We've read enough of that even there. So Elkanah has two wives, and it's good to both of them, but it, as is always to be the case, he loves one more than the other. You know, it's just, you know, that's just the way it would always work. So to add to the awe of this sweet family life, the ones that he, the one that he loves most can have children. The one that he doesn't love as much, who is green with envy, she has all sorts of children. But, that's not enough because she's jealous because oh, Anna more. So even though the Lord has blessed her with children, you know, there's jealousy. So she lords it over Hannah that you're barren, you don't have any children, you're not unfulfilled, you're not giving Elkanah what he wants. She's clearly not uh, a very nice person. Someone pointed out that Anna was a over-fertile, mouthy, thorny flesh uh, of Hannah. And I guess that's probably true. But now at once, with our advantage of looking back, we see that the trials of Hannah are a great blessing of the Lord in that she has the opportunity to be a big part of Israel's blessing in history in giving birth to Samuel, who technically is the last judge of Israel, uh, as well as a prophet. And uh, so she has a great part in Israel's history. So, you know, but it doesn't come without strict trial, which he's going through right now. And so if the work of God in saving the lost in the work of Jesus Christ isn't important to her, or if it's not important to us, then it's going to be these, these kind of afflictions uh, that in the end are, are to help us serve the Lord will not be handled well. In other words, if we don't understand what God is doing when he sends affliction in trial, it'll be impossible for us to handle it in a joyful, God-honoring way, right? And so, uh, this is one of the things you see within Hannah, that we see it, we see it all through the scriptures, though, that, that the trials come for a purpose. And if 
fundamental, as I said before, you know, a, a pastor must have the theology of suffering down pat and doesn't have anything else in one sense. It's extremely important for seeing to see this here. Um, we're also reminded, as with Joseph, that we might go, Joseph back in Genesis, we might go years before we get any light as to why we're going to the trial. The important thing, first of all, is to understand that God is behind the trial for his good pleasure, for our good. And that we might not know why. Uh, we might not know why in this life that Joseph sat in that prison for uh, two to three years right before he uh, realized God got him out and he realized what was going on. So God uses her barrenness and then it's uh, daily ridicule to drive Hannah to seek to uh, the Lord in prayer that she might serve him. And so you see the benefit of it is that she is driven to to pour out her, her heart to the Lord and her desire to have a son. And to the point where it, uh, and, it, and obviously God's plan is that Hannah would give sense back to uh, him in a sense through simple service as he was raised by Eli in the temple it was always God's uh, plan right so what does he do he, he withholds a son from Hannah until she willingly uh, says Lord I, I, I give this son back to you I understand he's yours anyway and she she comes to the place everybody should be when they before the children that my children are gifts to me, and I am a steward of the Lord to, to uh, raise that child for him. It's not mine in that sense. And Hannah comes to that point. So so we see that God is, is doing things in her life. It's interesting that he wants Hannah's only child and not one of bananas who's got perhaps ten. Surely as you read her prayer at the end of all this, we're we learn that she is consumed with the greatness of God and in that prayer chapter 2 as she's in a sense thanking the Lord for what he's done it's all about what God has done it's nothing about really her son and her it's about the Lord she's consumed with God so whatever has happened here it's brought her to rely upon God and see him as the purpose of life and so it's obviously it's a good thing because she comes away glorifying the Lord but that's just the modus operandi of God throughout the Bible. He brings us to the point of desperation and hopelessness to realize that we can't take care of this problem. And if we try to, we'll just make a mess. So that we don't just nonchalantly just ask God to help, but we focus on prayer. focus on the Lord's will. We, we pour out our heart we're consumed with looking to him for help. He's getting us what we should be all the time. So we can say that God graciously gives us trials and problems. That we would stay centered on him. And this is just fundamental. To, it's Christianity 101. That we're so prone to get off. Not, not just to get consumed with king. To get consumed with me and how I relate to everything. And, and not that this is all about God and how I can serve him. So, again, and Hannah, by all accounts, are godly. They have trials. It, it's not God's will that the godly 
have trouble free life. That's something that some people just really don't get. So notice how she handles the problem in verse 10 here as she uh, starts, she comes to the Lord and she uh, weeps bitterly before him. Uh, she could have become angry at God. And that's how some people do. They have a problem and all of a sudden they're uh, angry at God. They quit going to church. They get better. Instead of, you know, okay, Lord, what do I need to do here? Help me. You know, it, it Instead of being driven closer to Christ, they're driven away. So she could have said, well, Lord, you're not being fair. Why is this happening to me? She could have been blaming others and becoming bitter. She could have, you know, been caught tongue-in-cheek. She could have gone to the Christian therapist who would have said, well, you're, you're crying all the time. You're depressed. Uh, you look like you have a, a eating disorder. It's obviously that you've got a lot of anger. You're suffering from low self-esteem. You know, all these things, you, you could, you could, people would say, oh, that's what's going on here. And say, you need to let all your rage out towards God, Hannah. You, you're codependent. You need to set boundaries. You're enabling your husband and this other woman to carry on. You can't really love your husband if you don't love yourself. You need to start looking out for your own needs for a change. All the standard, uh, pablum that we hear today. And finally, they would say, let's get started on Prozac. It's all about, you know, it's nothing about the Lord that's going to get down to it so often. And there are many counselors who claim to be Christians who, who would really go that direction for the most part. And what you're saying is that prayer and Bible study and uh, Christian fellowship, you know, the means of grace aren't don't really work. You've got to deal with problems the way that everybody else and I think it goes along with what we're seeing in First Corinthians about listening to the worldly wisdom or to wisdom come from God is the Word of God. So what I'm saying here is that learning to lay hold of God in prayer as we live biblically, in other words, as we are obeying Him through the Word of God is the primary way to handle our problems. And what I hope you understand at some point, if you don't already, is that it is an effective way the best and most effective way to deal with your problems is through growing in the Lord and taking our problems to Him and obeying Him in Scripture and see what the Bible says about how to deal with things rather than listening to all the things that would tell you to focus on yourself. God is refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. So there it is. God is your help in trouble. And it, it, it you know, I think so many times it becomes a Christian phrase, just something that we sounds good, but we don't actually live it out. I say, well, no, I need to have uh, tranquilizers as my help. Uh, alcohol is my help. Uh, you know, whatever it is my help. No, God is our refuge and strength. He is the one to go to to help you wherever you're going to. Therefore, and so here's the application. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved to the heart of the sea. See, you don't have to fear. You don't have to live in anxiety and bitterness and depression, at least in a way that paralyzes you, because God is your strength. It, it, 
if, if that's not true, then I don't know what the Bible needs. So I don't have to fear. When it says the earth gives way, the mountains be moved to the heart of the sea. It's talking about literally. It would be a problem if the earth gave way, right? It about food, whatever. It's, but that's, that's, you know, Jesus says, you know, through prayer, if you have faith, you can move a mountain, you be cast into the sea. It's just, I think he's probably getting it from this idea. It's, it's, it's the Old Testament way of talking about life's disruption. Have you ever been in a situation where it felt like your whole world had just caved in? Everything's been turned upside down? These great things that were all of a sudden gone, or all of a sudden in front of you. You know, it's talking about just when when life falls apart. God, the truth of Scripture, the truth of what Christ has done for you. Uh, what you, the people are saying here, the purpose for these things. It is truth that takes away or helps you deal with anxiety and disruption. With, with Loved one leaves you, or whatever it is, you don't. You, you can cope without having to take tranquilizers. And, and there's a lot of people who just absolutely. There's Christians who would who will argue with you over that left and right. Well, I'm, you know, I'm sorry, Hannah. The, the Bible, difficult times. They just none of them had tranquilizers, so they had to be. We have to be able to with our problems without them. And I'm not saying maybe there's not a time where they, they maybe are good for whatever. But if you don't have them, you, you, you don't need them. And, you know, to cope. If Christ is all you need, and I, and I think you need to, it's something that I think people really struggled with over the years in our day and age. And there's a lot of things we say we don't seems like that you can deal with fear and anxiety without medication if needed. And it does. So why can't we? Now, I'm not saying that we shouldn't seek godly counsel concerning our problems. God-honoring counseling helps you think through your problems biblically. That helps you look at life biblically so that you can accept them and deal with them. If you need medical help, seek medical help, obviously. There, there will always be some often practical steps that we can help, that we can do to resolve problems. Sometimes problems are of our own making. Or there's just obviously common sense things, common sense things that if we do, it will help. Those are all part of it. But, we, you know, at the end of the day, as the song sings, and I hope we're not lying when we sing it, all I need is Christ. I yet last week in First Corinthians. In, with, if you have Christ, you have everything you need. That's, that's got to mean something. So prayer should permeate the whole process of dealing with the things that are going on in our life along with careful adherence to the Word that is listening to God instead of this world. And there will always be good results now, it's not always possible to alleviate stress and depression. I'm not saying that if we do these things, problems will disappear, or that all of a sudden we'll just be happy and singing a, a, you know, 
song and move off and that we won't be depressed anymore, won't have anxiety. No, those things happen. As long as you're having a problem, you're going to have some measure of anxiety about it. But it's how you deal with that. Do I glorify the Lord? Do I do His hand to do and I come to Him and I show others that I can be happy and rejoice in the Lord and calm and peaceful even while I'm going through my whole world is caving in or having these big problems. So another thing to notice is that Hannah doesn't just pray for her need or desire, but she but she makes sure that it's God's will, it's for his glory. And, 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 and this prayer was answered because Hannah says, I will give my son to you. She says, Lord, I don't, I'm not asking this just for myself because that immediately becomes sin. We ask things for things that maybe we need or at least we think we need. But we really don't care whether it's the Lord's will or what, you know, about His honor and glory. I just don't like this and I don't want it anymore. So that's what we're praying for. And I don't care what the Lord, you know, how it affects anybody else or whatever, you know, that, that becomes sin on So she's praying that her needs be met. At least that she understands it. But she prays for the right reason. But if, you know, so uh, Jesus said that we are to pray for our daily bread in the Lord's Prayer, right? You know, so it's right to pray for our needs. And, and obviously food, nourishment is a need, a real need, as far as that goes. But notice that even before he ever got to our daily bread, he says, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Before I ever start asking the Lord to take care of even the legitimate thing, I first say, Lord, it's all about you. I am here to serve you. So therefore, give me my daily bread so that I can help bring your kingdom. Do my do your will. And if I can't do that, then I shouldn't be praying for my daily bread. But of course, that's not the right option. The option is, yes, pray for daily bread because you have the right motivation to do so. And, and I think we all know that that is so easy to forget and that perhaps at some point we have gone through life completely oblivious to why we pray for some of the things we pray for. And so the purpose of prayer is not just to solve our problem so that we can live happy, troubled, self-centered lives. Prayer is that God's will be done. And so God is going to use a child of Hannah, not her rival. Perhaps one reason is because Hannah has the right attitude for wanting children. She understands this is about the Lord. Uh, I was thinking about this, uh, this song here that we first in Ozion, page one of the verses goes, Give of thy sons to bear the message glorious. Give of thy wealth, feed them on their way. Pour out thy soul for them in prayer victorious, and all thou spendest, each will repay. That song, at the heart of it, is saying, Parents, give your children to the Lord's service. Send, let them, if, if God calls them into the mission field, let them go. You might not ever see them again. But when, when Adoniram Judson asked, uh, Wife, first wife, uh, father was a missionary. He was already uh, planning on going to Burma as a 
missionary and Nancy's wife do that. And he asked her father, are you willing to never see your daughter again? Because in all likelihood, that's how it's going to be. It's back in the early 1800s. And, and that's true faith, but that's true love for the Lord. That's saying, look, I, I love my child, and I don't want to never see them again, but I realize that it's not about me. It's about the Lord's service. And so this is saying that. And, and, and a parent, a Christian parent who isn't ready to say, yes, I will do what I can for my children to serve the Lord, even if it means I never see them, even if it means their death, is not ready to have children in a, in a godly sense. And yet I've had people tell me, to my face, because, you know, we have, uh, in, 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 me in the ministry, uh, I've been to many places. And so I've left good friends. You know, I've uprooted my family. And it's no easy thing to do. Um, and so, that, but that's a, that's, so I have a different experience than someone who's just been raised in the same place and lived there the whole life. Right? It's, just, it's just a whole different thing. I've had people tell me that I will, I will never leave. I've been born here, I'm going to die. I'll never leave my family. Well, I'm sorry, they become an idol. That, that location becomes an idol. That child, you won't leave, becomes an idol. That parent, you won't leave. Because what if it's the Lord's will that you leave? And you've already, basically what you're saying is, Lord, here's the parameters that you can work to me. I'm not leaving this place. I'm born here, I'm going to die here. Well, I'm sorry. But that's about as unchristian an attitude as one can have. And it certainly doesn't reflect this, right? So it's just interesting how sometimes, and I, if some people told me that, I don't doubt for a moment they were saved. But they were very, they were that fleshly Christians that we dealt with, carnal Christians that we dealt with a few weeks ago. Life was all, still about this, way more than it should be, and that's a sign of maturity. Anyway, I look at all that. And I wonder if, some, you know, like some pray for marriage problems, because they're miserable. Understandable to pray, but it never crosses their mind that they have no real desire for a godly, God honoring relationship. They just don't like the relationship they're in. They want God to do something about it, but they're not willing to say, "Okay, you know what? We have failed to keep Christ at the center of this thing. We don't go to church like we should. We we don't fellowship with God's people, having all these problems, and." You know, so now we've come to the past asking him help because some, we're hoping that he's going to give us some little magic pill that's going to fix the, our relationship. But what we will not do is to die daily to self and give ourselves to the Lord and treat one another as sinners saved by grace and humble ourselves before each other and to learn to love sacrificially. We're not going to do that. And I know I've talked to, to uh, young couples I'd say young and maybe in the 30s who are having problems. And they want, they don't like the situation they're in, but they're not about to commit themselves to Christ in, in, in any real way. So, so you might find a counselor who will get some good advice and maybe help things a little bit, but if you don't put Christ in the middle of that and, and, and understand what it is to repent and to humble yourself, 
order to get along with someone, it's not going to last too. So again, it's, it's the motivation behind the thing So, um, since the Lord's work is motivation, it's not just that she could be a typical mother and fit in with the other mothers. I'm sure that would have been nice if she wanted that, you know, But her motivation is right. So as bring it over to our day, we need to keep this in mind. It isn't, we pray, that we might bargain with the Lord over whether he will give us children or fulfill whatever desires we have but that we might fulfill whatever purposes he has for us on earth. And that's, you know, a New Testament take on all this. Because we don't live under a covenant which God has promised us to be fruitful, to have a lot of children. Like they were, they were under a covenant that that was the norm that they think were going on. We don't live under and that's all well and good, because whether I be have children or not, or whatever else, no, everything, again, everything is ours. So every situation, you know, we're blessed with children. Well, the Lord uh, is going to use that so that you can be fruitful, but in a different way, right? And so there is no circumstances in which we can't be fruitful and, and do things for the Lord. And that's so much better than a covenant, uh, like the old covenant. There is no bad thing, uh, unfruitful, you know, like the canon, not to have a child that's just like, oh, that's the worst thing. Well, it, it can be a very obviously painful trial. Somebody wants children can't have them. But the, the blessings of Christ is that I can serve well, be happy, be content anyway, and have eternal reward, right? And that's, that's the beauty of all this. That's the reminds so much of our text last week, the first listening. Well, verse 8, you almost have to laugh at this. I have to think this is Hannah in here for comedy. Elkanah, her husband, says, Am I not more to you than his son? She does, at least it's not recorded she ever answered that. It's a blessing. Think of husband and wife. Aren't I enough for you? Well, yes and no. I mean, you know, no, she needs a little more than just because he's a good husband. So I think it's a little funny here, but um, certainly Elkanah loves her, and uh, she loves Elkanah, but she's not content in this issue because she's not able to serve the Lord in her situation. There's some things missing, and so it might be good for us husbands to remember this: your wife is not going to find fulfillment if she's a Christian, and both of you love the Lord. She will not find fulfillment in just being your wife. As fulfilling as that hopefully can be, it should be, if things are right. The Lord created her to serve Him, first of all. And while that service will include being your wife, you know, I, I, you see men who think that all the, all his wife needs to worry about is Him. So all your wife needs to worry about is serving the Lord, and part of that is being your wife. But she needs to have a relationship with the Lord. And uh, if men become so selfish if they don't think these things through, some men seem to think their wives are there for their enjoyment and service alone.
But if we are good husbands and Christian leaders, we want to be sure that our family is growing in faith and service. Uh, I heard long ago, I remember someone saying that um, if you're being a good husband and father, you are developing the Lord's gift. You're helping to develop the Lord's gift in your wife, in your family, so that they can be fruitful and serve the Lord as well. And I think it's very easy for husbands to think, well, all you need to worry about is doing what I tell you to do, and things are good. And I think that's just a recipe for disaster. If your wife is as much a servant of the Lord as a man is, a loving husband isn't just a man that should serve him over the Lord. And so in 21 through 23, this is confirmed in that she, he sees that she has a duty to serve the Lord. Remember, she is, uh, it's his son, and also that she, that part of he seems to be okay with that. Right? He does, he's not fighting with her. So he is okay in that situation to let her do what she feels like she needs. So I think that's just a good, uh, example for us to stop and to remember that, you know, husbands, you, you don't need to micromanage. Sometimes, you know, there's wives who can micromanage too, but, you know, a husband who thinks that he has to micromanage his wife's life, uh, you're going to take it. Believe me. And, uh, I, you know, I don't go into my wife's in the pictures or tell my wife has to well, First of all, I want her to be married, right? And, and, but why? You know, it's, it's what she, she has things she does well and, and, I'm not going to sit and tell her how to do everything because I don't know how to do everything at well anyway. So, you know, it's just, it's just selfish. So he's happy to let her do whatever God's will would have her do. So, verse 11 says, uh, she vows to bow to the Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look to the afflicted servant, remember me, I'll give you Give me a son, I will give him back to you. And so it's interesting here that we, we saw in Judges that Samson in all likelihood have still doing his thing wherever the Lord had called him and what part of Israel. But now he's raising up a new Samson, a new, uh, the last judge, actually. And, you know, they're not the same type of person, they're not going to go about it the same way, but the Lord uh, is always going to get his work done, whether we're here or not. None of us are invincible. Uh, the Lord is always raising up men It shouldn't perhaps be lost on us as well that we're talking about an obscure woman in an obscure town, uh, in an obscure place on earth. Just a little, like, you know, sometimes we maybe we look at the country bumpers or Way out there in the middle of nowhere, you know, backwater, the backwater place. And it's easy to think, well, those things aren't that important. It's the big ministry or the big city and the big name. Uh, well, I think we have to be very careful there because somehow we think that our time, uh, our place is more relevant than somebody else's and stuff like that. And with God, every age, most obscure places, the most obscure people are all equally important. He gave life to them for a purpose. Because they're all serving him. So you don't have to be a Charles Spurgeon 
You can just be a humble housewife in some place that nobody knows about, but God has given you a place to serve, and you will be rewarded. If you're faithful, and do it for the right reasons. Any more than Spurgeon had Spurgeon, if Spurgeon's ministry had been all a result of his pride, there, there'd be no reward for it. There, what the Lord, the Lord takes sometimes use that kind of stuff. But if your motivations are right in your humble surroundings, you will receive the same reward as somebody else. Because God put you there. It's for Him. The reward is uh, receiving the well done, thou good and faithful servant. I think this is good news for us, right? You know, what, what is Beaver County? It's just, it is what it is. Who are we? What are we doing? But it doesn't matter because the Lord has given us life. So she's praying for the Lord to do this and, uh, in her heart, moving her mouth, and Eli sees it and thinks she's drunk about it. And this is interesting because if we're going to see here, we won't get to it today, but he had two sons whom he has refused to correct at all to the point that they are actually committing fornication in the temple when the women would come to do whatever they were doing that. And he wasn't, he never corrected them. And he pays the price and the sons pay the price for that. But he's willing to correct this woman for he thinks might be drunk, but he won't correct his sons who are doing way worse things than that, right? And yet, Eli is, I think, the text makes very evident that he is a believer. Um, but it's just kind of interesting how that we can get unfocused on our own sins shortcomings and focus on somebody else's. But he does, when he hears what's going on there, he does give her reassurance and tells her to go and teach. Hannah seems to take that as God has hurt you, and so she seems to go and she seems to sit with the Lord, and she's uh, that burden seems to be taken off of her. And of course, we know that the Lord does give her a sign. In fact, uh, we see here in chapter 20, I think it is, he gives her several sons and daughters after that as well. Has nine months later has Samuel, who means give him, they mean give about the Lord, or offspring of God. So every time she uses his name, she kind of reminded herself that this is a gift of God. Right? So that's not a bad motivation to name children. Uh, in verses 24 to the end, we see her vow is not a way to manipulate God, but she does make good on him. In other words, she, she doesn't say, Oh, I'll do whatever to get this. No, she takes it seriously. She follows too. She gives it to Eli to live in the temple, help Eli once he gets to an age where he wings. Um, so it just proves to us that the New Testament teaches that our love for God must make our love for our family seem as hate is not lofty minded. We talk about this this song here and what we're talking about there. That is an example of people saying, Lord, uh, I give them to you. Blood is not thicker than the blood of Christ, as so many seem to think it is. The family is all that matters. Well, no, the uh, church family is all that matters. The, the, all, the family of God is all that matters. 
going to go that way. Um, so we got to be very careful there. So I think this just shows that, that it's not lofty minded, but those who really love the Lord are willing to keep the means breaking the time on earth. So be it. Because they're all broken at death anyway, right? You know, Christ will be our spouse in heaven. Well, kind of, we're going to say a few things here in chapter 2, but uh, let's say that for next week. Very questions or comments? No doubt. That's getting, that's some of the deep things. It, it, the deep things are not the gospel, but the deep things is how it, it worked out in our life, how, how it affects us, how, how we think right, how we fortify the flesh and start to love Christ the wonderful thing of Christianity is to know God to be trans. But they're different. They bring persecution. They bring uh, sometimes difficulty. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you might bless us as we move into the uh, second hour. We pray for those who are not here. Lord, we know it's holiday weekend and people are off traveling. We ask that you might keep everybody safe. We have Jeff. He's not feeling well, and he would be better. 